We're gonna play a little rock and roll right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock, rock, rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll is king. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And yes, after 29 episodes, I'm still the best they could come up with for a host, Don DiMuccio. Now, we're going to get right into the show, but first, I want to try something a little bit different. We're going to start off with a riddle. Ready? What do Argent, Rainbow, Santana, two members of ABBA, two members of KISS, Miami Vice, and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey have in common? They've all featured songs written by our special guest today. Now, most of you will recognize his name, but all of you should recognize his work. Here's a tiny sample of some of his best. These four walls are closing in. Look at the fix you put me in. Since you've been gone, since you've been gone, I'm out of my head, can't take it. You can do magic. You can have anything that you desire. Whether as frontman for 70s supergroup Argent or as a solo artist, our guest today has written some of the most well-known and enduring songs in rock history. Tracks like God Gave Rock and Roll to You, Since You've Been Gone, Liar, New York Groove, and dozens more accredited to the singer-guitarist and prolific songwriting giant of the music industry. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Russ Ballard. Good morning, Russ. Hi, Don. It's great to be here. Oh, would it be morning where you are, is it? No, no, it's uh, it's four four in the afternoon here. Where exactly in the UK are you? I'm North London. Uh, well, we're not actually part of London. We're just on the outskirts of London, a place called Hertfordshire. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's quite a nice day today. Well, let me ask you: Am I Americanizing your last name because I've heard it pronounced Ballard, Ballad? Well, Americans usually call me Ballard, and uh, 
I'll accept anything. Well, this is going to be more like a psychological profile more than an interview, so I want you to pull up some suppressed memories here. Yeah. What is your earliest memory of hearing rock and roll? Elvis Presley. Yeah, it was Elvis doing Heartbreak Hotel. I was at a birthday party when I was a kid, and uh, it, it, it was a friend's brother... And we were all very young. Uh, the mum and dad were there and stuff like that. And the older brothers and sisters were playing music and I could hear this amazing sound. It was just a sound. It wasn't like, although it was a blues song, it didn't sound like a blues. It just sounded like something from outer space, you know. Mm. Well, since my baby left me. <laughs> it was amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then from then I was hooked anyway. I was hooked on that, so the excitement of it, you know. I know you're an accomplished guitar player, but that wasn't your primary instrument starting off. Actually, no, that's true. I started when I was, as long ago as I remember, I was playing the drums because my dad was a drummer. And like, you want to be like your dad, you know? And sure. so uh, I didn't have a drum kit at home. My dad used to promote dances every Saturday night, sometimes during the week. So I used to have dances at this place called the Imperial Hall. So he used to leave his drums set up, you know, and basically they were there. He used to leave them there. But uh, sometimes he brought a drum home to change the head of the drum or something. And I used to knock the, you know, I used to play around with the drum. I loved it. I loved playing drums, you know. Mm. And uh, I got a biscuit tin, like a metal biscuit tin and a couple of knitting needles that my mum used. And I used to play with this this biscuit tin all the time, you know, just trying to sort of, I used to watch my dad and I thought I could do that, you know. And uh, for a few years, I was just hitting this biscuit tent with uh, with knitting needles. Yeah. Then when I was eight, I was sent to piano lessons with my brother. My brother was four years older, so he was already playing pretty good piano. And uh, I used to go with him. I went for five years to piano lessons every Wednesday with him. But my dad decided to send him to another teacher, and he was more of a modern a modern jazz teacher. So, you know, my brother was a very good reader, so he could read all these arrangements, you know, it's very good. But I continued going to this guy that was doing light classical music, you know, which bored me to tears. But, um, <laughs> you know, when uh, I used to go and do my practice on the piano every day, which I was supposed to do half an hour a day, but as soon as my mum and dad were out of the room, I was playing Jerry Lee Lewis, you know. Right. <laughs> so I, I loved all that, you know, or Memphis Slim, or those boogie, those boogie things I used to love. And I was, uh, I got pretty good at it, you know. I still write my songs on piano, you know. All, all the songs you mentioned there, I wrote on piano. Was your teacher encouraging the rock and roll side, or was it? No, I don't think he knew what rock and roll was. He was, um, he was, he was a pretty old man. I was eight years old, you know, nine uh, and ten and whatever. And it was always like classical. I mean, some of it I liked. I, I liked the, I liked the actual music side of it. But learning the theory, I didn't like very much. It was pretty difficult, you know. I'm sure it's paid off. But know. it's paid off, you yeah. know. And I'm so glad they sent me. You know, I used to say, I hate doing this. I hate doing this, but. Uh, they said, you'll, you'll thank us in the end. <laughs> and I do, you know, it's brilliant, yeah. Now, you're talking about being young. You composed your first song that ended up being recorded by a national artist, what, when you were 14? Yeah, that was the first thing I ever wrote, yeah. I was learning the guitar then. I went from, uh, I packed up going to piano lessons when I was 13. My dad bought me a guitar when I was 12. I said, I want a guitar, I just want a guitar. And he said, you're not having a guitar, you stick to piano, you know. And in the end, I played him, I want a guitar, I want a guitar. Yeah, we took a guitar off the wall in the shop and uh, he said, look, the, you can have this guitar. It was the most expensive one I could find in the shop, but it was probably $15, you know. And I took a play in a day, a tutor called 
Burt Whedon's Playing a Day, which had guitar chords and things in there. And uh, when I took it into the kitchen, I sat over this little paraffin fire to keep me warm. And uh, I used to play till my fingers bled, you know, just loved it. I loved playing the guitar. And um, I still play every day. I'm, I'm playing guitar and piano every day, you know. Yeah, I love it. Now, the Shadows song. Yeah, the Shadows were the biggest thing. This is before the Beatles, so it's a long time ago. The Shadows were the biggest thing in this country. They were, they, they, they were big. They backed a guy called Cliff Richard, mm-hmm. who I knew, even as an 11-year-old, I knew Cliff. He was just making it. He was just making it big over here. And he had a band, the same guys actually had a band called The Drifters, but when the American drifters happened big time, you know, they had to change their name. They changed their name to the Shadows. Then they started recording and recording instrumental songs, a bit like the Ventures did. You know, the Ventures were doing it too over over in the States. Right. And uh, the Shadows, they were the first band to record Apache. Well, yep. I know that Jorgen Ingman, I think it was, had number one hit with it in America. Well, the Shadows had a number one hit with it here. And it was very, very atmospheric. It sounded like... Um, you know, you could see the Wild West in this music, you know, so descriptive of what we thought cowboys and Indians were, you know. It was magic. I started to do that kind of music. And uh, Cliff Richard's brother-in-law, by then Cliff was a big, he was the biggest thing in the country. He was a little plastic Elvis, really. You know, he was a little <laughs> bit like Elvis, but a great looking guy and a great voice uh, at the time, really good. And his brother-in-law had a, it was a coffee bar from about five miles from here. And my brother and I used to go up there and uh, just waste our time on the pinball machines and things like that, you know, and we used to speak to him. I was in a band with my brother. It was basically my band. My brother, Bob Henry, who was in Argent with me, he was a drummer. I was 13. My brother was 17. Bob was 15. Bernie Benson, the bass player, was 15 or 16. You know, they, we were all very young. I wrote this tune, and it was called uh, The Lost City. We went into a studio for the first time, a demo studio. It's where the Stones made their very first album. It was the demo studio, but I went into that that studio and we paid for it and cut this thing. We were talking to Paul Stevens in his coffee bar and he said, what have what you been up to? And we said, oh, well, you know, we've just been into the studio. It was a big deal, you know. He said, uh, well, what did you do? What did you do in the studio? Oh, we, we cut this thing. It's an instrumental. It's an instrumental Russ wrote, you know. And he said, oh, give it to me. I'll send it to the Shadows publisher, you know. We thought, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we gave him the copy and... Um, Lo and behold, four years later, this is true, four years later when I was 18, the Shadows publisher phoned me and said, the Shadows have cut your tune. (laughs) It's very, very strange. So uh, he said, yeah, it's coming out on the new album. We want the credits. Can we have the publishing? It was published by Carlin, which Freddie Beanstock owned in New York. Now, Freddie Beanstock had Lieberman Stoller. Mm. He had Pomus and Schumann. He had all these people, you know, and... uh, he published it, which is I met him years and years later when I when I was twenty five. Yeah, good good talks with him, and then Lieber and Stoller walked into the room. So uh, that was like uh, every sweet in the candy store coming in. You know what I mean? Oh sure, <laughs> your heroes. I mean, yeah, yeah, they were my heroes, right? And all, all the Elvis stuff. It got to number seven on their album. Their album got to number seven. It got a lot of plays, and it became a single. It inspired me to keep writing. You know. 
and I used the very first, it was like a wah-wah on the track, so it sounded very different, uh, but it wasn't called a wah-wah, it was called a de-armoured tone control, and instead of doing a wah-wah sound, it just changed the signal from a sort of treble to bass, you know, yeah. very top to bass, so it go, sort of go wah-wah like that. And uh, I used this thing, you know, no one was using these things. And, uh, and when I listened to the Shadows version, you know, they obviously got one because they used it on, on the thing and made exactly the So all, that, all those things sort of inspired me to, uh, you know, to keep writing. You know, you can do it, keep writing. And sure. I never stopped, actually. I kept writing right the way. That's from when I was from 14. You know, there were lots of moments when I wouldn't write for months and then I come back to it and come back to it. Then a lot later when Argent started, you know, Rod was a good writer. Rod Argent was a, a good writer. He'd written She's Not There for the Zombies. He'd written Time of the Season. And, I, you know, and they had the Odyssey and Oracle album out. And uh, there's some great tunes on there. He said to me, have you got any songs? You know, I said, no, I can write some. I did have one. I had a song called Schoolgirl that was on the first album. He said, that's great. Yeah, well, well let's use that. Then I wrote Liar on that album, and I wrote another one. So from then on, I kept going, Don. I never stopped, you know. I know. And that's why it's so obvious that you're always writing, because so many different kind of artists have covered your music. Yeah. I mean, I want to get into the specifics as we go. But I, I'm kind of interested in your time in the roulettes. Um, Adam Faith, I know he was yeah. a good friend of yours. And not to patronize our listeners, but a lot of Americans might not be familiar with him. Can you give me a little quick synopsis of who he was? Yeah. He was six or seven years older than me, but he was a big star. Uh, there were two stars in England that were, like, a few years later, the Beatles and the Stones, they were parallel, you know, but the Beatles right. were, have always been the phenomenon that they, they are, you know. Mm. The Stones were always there and they're still there. Before that, there was Cliff Richard and Adam Faith, you know. Cliff was an Elvis, sort of more like Elvis, and uh, Adam Faith was very Buddy Holly. But it was the Buddy Holly of the, uh, where, there you go, baby, here am I. He had strings, pizzicato strings and stuff, you know. So yeah. uh, he was very different. Cliff Richard was dark. Adam Faith was very sort of white hair, you know, and sometimes he dyed it white and everything. So he looked great. I mean, he, looked, he was a punk. He said to yeah. me years later, he said, I was the first punk, wasn't I? I said, you were. I always thought you, you know, I wouldn't have used the word punk, but you were a punk. He wanted to be Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones, you know. He was making films, and he was an actor, he was making films, and uh, he looked, he looked at, you know, he looked a million dollars then, you know, amazing. I guess around this area, around East Hearts, where we live, East Hertfordshire, we were probably the best band around here, and we were, you know, people used to follow us around. We were playing all the time around here, you know, and uh, there was another band. They were older than us, another band, really, really good band, but uh, they used to go to school with Cliff Richard, this band, and they became professional. The bass player in that band joined Adam Faith. He needed a band to go on the road, and he joined Adam Faith. I mean, that was all big deal, you know. So Adam Faith, this big star that was always on TV. And, of course, when he was in the band for a year, he got Bob and me into the band, you know, Bob Henry and myself in the band. It was brilliant, you know. Uh, it was big big time. We were in the big time. We were doing probably 40, 50 TV shows a year. 
We've been doing a program called Ready, Steady, Go, which was a rock program of the Stones and the Searchers and Eric Bird and the Animals and the Beatles and that kind of stuff. And then we do Thank You, Lucky Stars with the same people and the Beach Boys, Martha and the Vandellas and all these people. So you were rubbing shoulders with all those people. With everybody, you know. So, yeah, it was brilliant. Adam Faith and I became very good friends. He wasn't a musician. He was never a musician, but he had a sound like a Buddy Holly kind of sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, we made a few albums with him. Uh, he was a solo star, but when we joined him, the Beatles were huge and the Stones were big. So he changed his sound. <laughs> he changed his sound from this guy that was backed by pizzicato strings. His manager says, you've got to have a band. You've got to have a band, you know. So we became his band. It became Adam Faith and the Roulettes. So we became sort of, uh, you know, well-known. While we were in the Roulettes, I might as well tell you this now because we might not talk about it. In 1965, there was a band had a very big hit in the States and it got to number one here, but you had two versions in the top 20 in Billboard and the song was called Concrete and Clay. Do you remember that? Well, I know that's unit four plus two. Is that you got it. Where are you going? Yep. You I don't remember because yeah. I'm only 50 and that's no excuse. Yeah, no, I, I, know I, that thought, I thought you might be too young to, to know it's this. It's not band. an excuse. I should know it, but I don't. A lot of, yeah, yeah, but it's not really rock and roll. But I mean, we we sort of try to turn it into a rock and roll song. It's more like a drifters, right. more like a drifters kind of tune. But uh, they were called Unit 4 initially. They had a record deal with Decca, um, but they didn't have any electric guitar. They didn't have a bass or a drummer. So they were like the Kingston Trio, or they were like uh, that kind of, um, more like a folk band, you know, at that time, 65. Yeah. But they released a couple of singles. And then one of the guys, Brian Parker in the band, wrote a song called Concrete and Clay. Tommy Mola, the singer, wrote the words. And they needed, uh, obviously, to make it into like a commercial kind of tune. So they needed a guitar player. They needed a bass player. They had a bass player in the end then. And they needed a drummer. So Bob and I became the plus two in the band. <laughs> so we were the plus. I played acoustic guitar on it. And, um, well, it got to number one here. But it, it was such a beautiful tune. The tune was a great tune. But we made it really fast. The guy that wrote it hated it because it was so fast. He wanted it to be more like, you know, you can dance with the guy that gives you the eye let him hold you tight do you want it to be really sort of like the drifters and we made it sort of you to me are sweet as roses in the morning <laughs> you to me are sweet as roses in the morning you to me are soft as summer rain and don't kill up the shade that's something red. the sidewalks in the street the concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble But love will never die Because we'll see the mountains tumble Before we say goodbye My love and I We can love eternally That's the way That's the way it's meant to be All around Yeah, that became big Again, that was quite inspiring When you get in the management Bob and I for doing the single they paid us five pounds for doing the single and when it was number one they then paid us 250 pounds each in 1965 it's not bad yeah they paid us 250 pounds to do the next single which was a totally different kind of song which was a you know a problem really bob and i went on the road with the unit four for uh about six to eight months we went on the road with them you know and, and we said, you know, the roulettes have split. And they said, why don't you come on the road with us? So we did that, and it was fun. It was a bit of fun, you know. And then that's when Rod Argent phoned us and said, uh, I'm going to start another band. You know, will you join us? And Just what I was going to ask you. 
That's, yeah, I guess. And I got to tell you, the Zombies, for my money, is just one of the most underrated bands of at least that first wave of the British Invasion. Yeah, yeah. They were, yeah. were you I friendly so. with the guys in the band? Yeah, because they're they're out this this way, Don. They're out this way. They're not far from. They're only twenty minute drive from here to where Rod used to live and Colin. Yeah. We used to play football with them on uh, Thursday nights. They used to come over here. There'll be a few of us. Nobby Dalton from the Kinks would play on a Thursday night. There'll be a couple of other musicians. Ray Davis would sometimes sometimes come out and play. We would all play with my school friends and stuff, and we would play on. It was just a fun, you know. We put the coats down and play. Yeah. And suddenly these two guys turned up and it was Rod and Colin and in Rod's Rolls. Rod was 18 and he had this huge Rolls Royce. It was a joke, you know, that's so funny. They used to turn up most Thursdays and uh, we became friendly, you know. Well, tell me about joining Argent. The joining, it happened when uh, we were in the Unit 4 and we were playing a gig in Essex, which is from here. This town was probably 45 minutes from here. And we're playing, and the, I guess there's a few hundred people there, you know, probably 500 people in the hall. We were doing two 45-minute sets. We'd finished the first one, and we were in the dressing room, and Rod Argent and Chris White walk in, you know, and they're in <laughs> in Essex. We said, what are you doing here, you know? Yeah. And uh, they said, oh, we were just passing, and we saw Unit 4 outside. You, you saw the name of the band, so oh, let's go and see them, you know. That was the audition, I think. <laughs> sure. But I didn't know then. I was saying to I was chatting to Rod, and I said, you know, do you miss? He hadn't played then. He hadn't played on the road. When he split the zombies, he was off the road for about two years, I think. So I said to Rod in the dressing room, I said to him, don't you miss playing? Don't you miss playing live? He went, yeah. I said, it gets into the blood, doesn't it? And he went, yeah, yeah, like that was doing all this. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, two days later on the Monday, I get a call from Rod, and he says, will you be in the band? I want Bob in there as well. So um, he already had Jim Rodford. Of course, Jim later joined the Kinks with uh, with Bob. They were both in the Kinks later. But uh, that was 1968. And wasn't Time of the Season, it had already been recorded and then became a surprise hit? It was already recorded. They'd done Odyssey and Oracle. And they put Odyssey and Oracle out. And basically, they gave up on it. They gave up on, you know, because uh, I think they'd released something. And then they decided well after the first single they decided to release time of the season in america you know just put it out there and it grew mm-hmm. and it grew and it grew apparently from boise idaho it broke out from boise idaho because they played it on rotation they were playing this tune a lot yeah. and there we were getting our band together getting argent together right. <laughs> and uh, rod said you know Time of the season's gone into the charts in America. It's gone like it's in at number 75 or something. I said, Well, that's good. He said, Yeah, but they want the zombies back together because we've got a hit. He said, But I'm not going to. He said, I want a progressive band, you know. So that's what we were called progressive, I think, at the time. (laughs) Well, I know you've done the song live as Argent. Yeah, we used to do it. Believe it or not, it was from Time of the Season. That was the, the catalyst for Hold Your Head Up. Really? To get the band, to get Argent together, we went to southern Germany. We thought well, the best way of getting a band together is to play, go out and play and play and play, you know, just play. Uh, and Jim had already played there. He had played in Munich in Germany, and there was a club called the PN Club, Peter Naumann Club, in Leopoldstrasse, and uh, they had bands there every week, one band, or every two weeks. They'd play for two weeks. And uh, we played there for two weeks. We were just another band playing there for two weeks. They didn't know who we were. 
uh, and we were doing seven 45-minute spots a night for two weeks. Wow. That takes a lot of music. So yeah. You get had, good fast. You get good fast. That's how the Beatles became exactly. so good. In they were doing the same thing in Hamburg. But exactly. Uh, exactly. at weekends, we were playing nine 45-minute spots. But we would do two in the afternoon. So we'd go down there because people would come. They wanted to, you know, wanted to come out in the afternoon. So it used to get packed in the afternoon. We'd go back and get an hour's kip at the uh, flat and the apartment there. And then we come back in the evening and do another seven 45-minute spots. So that's what we did. Um, and from then on, we went to Rome. We went across the Brenner Pass in the snow and everything, and we, we played the Piper Club in Rome for two weeks. And on the way back, we went through Munich, and we went down there, and uh, I tell you, it was playing there. It was, um, it was Dreamer. Super Tramp? Super Tramp were playing in there. Yeah. They were getting their band together, but they weren't called Super Tramp. They were called something else, but it was the same guys, and they were good, actually. They were playing really well, but they were getting their band together. I think it's what a lot of bands did, you know. I guess we probably got 50 or 60 tunes together, you know, to actually play, and uh, then we used to do everything we could find. You know, we were doing rock and roll. We were doing old-fashioned rock and roll. We were doing everything, and, and we did Time of the Season. One of the songs we did was time of the season. So, uh, and it, it would go, do, 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 ah, do, 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 ah, it's the time, do, do, ah, you know, of the season. So we used to do that. And to make, we used to make these tunes last as long as we could, you know. <laughs> so we, would, <laughs> yeah, we would, had to make them last as long as we could, and do as much instrumental because it used to take it out of the voice. So we used to do them as long as we could. Yeah. And we'd get to the middle and Rod would start soloing. And we go do 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 and we change it around. We go do 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 do. I go do 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 do. We play all sorts of things in the middle, and it would go to other places. It was magical, and then we used to get into amazing places. And then it would, you know, Rod would do a five minute organ solo I'd do a bit of guitar and stuff and then it'll go back to doon, 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 what's your name who's your daddy <laughs> you know? yep, yep. and it always always used to go down where well chris white was with us he was he was sort of like a kind of a part manager at the time and chris said we ought to write something around that time of the season write another song around it mm. and the next thing i heard chris walked into rod's mother's house when we were rehearsing at rod's mother's house he walked in with this thing, he had a real, a little reel-to-reel tape machine, and uh, he had this loop, ding, 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 and he had this tune, and if it's bad, and he was saying, don't let it get you down, you can take it. And uh, I said, this is great, this is a nice tune, this is really good, you know, and uh, and that was it, <laughs> and that, that was on the third album. Now, did he write, because I mean, it seems like he's got songwriting credits for that, but what you're saying it was a group effort. It, well, to be fair, I mean, we were playing all kinds of things in the middle. We were doing lots of different stuff, which we, some of it we played on the record. I was doing the kind of stacks thing, which was da da da, which was the horn, the horn part for a lot of the stack stuff. Ding, 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 ding. That tramp feel, they call it. Yeah, yeah like yeah. tramp, yeah, yeah. 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 You're a tramp, I this. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, you know, we were doing all that. And now Rod says, I didn't realize that Rod wrote it with him, but Chris brought it in, and mm. it was, it, everything was there, the lyrics, everything, he'd finished the tune. 
So that wasn't my song. That was I would say that was Chris's song. But Rod said that he was he wrote it as well. So he probably did. You know. Were you surprised that the single caught on so big on mainstream top forty radio? Especially in an yeah. era where that wasn't the goal for you guys, I would imagine. No, 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 no. It just surprised me. I mean, I didn't think it would be a single anyway. I didn't think it was radio friendly, you know, really. Mm. And I mean, it was very long. And I said to Rod, you know, you can't have the organ solo and that. That'd be madness, you know. And then CBS insisted on, on an edit. But I always think, you know, on a, a single, you know, you need, you need one or two things that come out at you, you know, to, to be radio friendly. I think the guitar bit where I was scraping the guitar in the middle, you know, all that kind of stuff in the middle. Right. All those little, well, I was doing that in German and it's, it used to sound, you know, sometimes you would get it to, into a harmonic and it would sound really, really, I couldn't get it on the session, but it still sounded uh, effective. You know, you think, what, what is that, you know? Speaking of the session, how much recording went into that? Was it a lot of overdubs or was it something that you guys got in a few takes? That was done all together. The only thing that was overdubbed was the organ solo. That was overdubbed. Uh, and the uh, the chant, hold your head up, woman, hold your head up, hold your head up. For the gang vocals, yeah. Yeah, that, and we, all, we all just went in for that, yeah. Well, I'm proud to say that I own an original 45 copy on the yellow epic label. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that.
My favorite song of Arjun, for what it's worth, is uh, 1973's God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Hit the UK charts for good reason. Should have been bigger here in the United States, but tell me the backstory behind writing that one. Uh, if you don't mind me talking about, I know it's got to be talked about because people do suffer with uh, problems over work or depression. Yeah, or I was going to bring that up. Yeah, so uh, I mean... I will talk about it. You can leave it and I'll take it out. Whatever. No, no, please. Uh, please. I, at that time, we were working really hard. I was pushing myself to up uh, because we were, because we had a hit record, which is Hold Your Head Up, and it was doing really well. You know, we suddenly started to play places in the north of England and they were absolutely rammed to the rafters with people. You know, it was, it was brilliant. Yeah. We thought something must be happening, you know, and uh, then it, it just went into the charts. Here, this was Hold Your Head Up. And um, I was still writing, you see. We'd play in Manchester, Liverpool. We'd play in Glasgow, whatever. And we would come back home, drive home like 200 miles, 250 miles, get back at 3 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, and I'd get into bed at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'd wake up at 7. This was my normal thing, you know. Uh, I'd get up at 7, and I'd be in the music room. In, I'd be in the bed. It's another bedroom. It was a spare bedroom with a piano in it, and I'd be writing, and I'd write from 7 o'clock, uh, 7 o'clock, and then I'd have some lunch, and then the car would pull up with our tour manager, with the roadie, and all the band would be in the car, and I'd jump in the car, and we'd go to another gig, <laughs> right? So, yeah, yeah. And then we travel 100 miles, 150 miles and whatever to another gig, do the gig, get back at three, four in the morning. I go to bed, get up at seven, be in the music room writing again. I did this for two years and like seven days a week I was doing this. It took a toll, you know, I was just, and you know, you get to that stage where the adrenaline keeps pushing you. And I love the adrenaline rush. I loved it anyway. I love that. But, you know, it does become a problem. You know, then you start to feel in between you either really, really high or for a week, you're really, really low, and you realize you're so tired, and you lose your body clock, and so I was still working, still working, like we never canceled a gig or anything. You know, when we did have a couple of days off, I'd go into the studio, demo studio, I was the only one making 24-track demos. Everyone else was writing songs, and putting them on the piano or guitar, and giving them to producers, but I was doing 24-track demos, you know, and 16-track demos. Mm. And I'd have a full-blown thing. I'd have uh, organs on it, and I'd have drums, and I'd have bass and stuff, and backing vocals and things. And uh, I remember Al Gallico, the publisher, <laughs> he, he used to publish our things in America. He said, Russ, Russ don't make demos. He makes masters. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I tell people, Russ don't make demos. He makes me. He did make me laugh. He's no longer with us, but he was funny. But I did. That's what I was trying to do. You know, I was learning my craft doing that, you know, and... Uh, one of the tunes I wrote was a song, and I thought this wouldn't suit Argent, but I wrote this tune called I Don't Believe in Miracles. And everybody was saying to me, you can't call a tune I don't believe. Everybody wants to believe in miracles. I said, no, it's got to be I don't believe in miracles. That was telling you where my head was, you know. Right, right. And I was in the studio, and there was an American tape hop in there, and he was sitting there winding the tape back and everything. He said, Russ, you can't call, you can't call this I don't believe in miracles. It's got to be I do. I said, no, no, it's got to be I don't, actually. But I end the last verse is, but I believe that somewhere there's someone who's going to like the way when things go wrong. You know, the bullet that shot me down was from your gun. The words that turned me around were from your song. Mm. He said, okay, okay, you know. Anyway, Colin Blundstone <laughs> recorded right. it. And uh, he had a hit with it here. It was Record of the Week on Radio 1 on BBC here. And it, everybody loved it, you know. Colin and I were friends. Anyway, I played piano on that track. Rod didn't play piano on that at all. But Colin 
Jim, Rod, and I did the backing vocals. You know, yeah. we were trying to do a bit of Carpenters there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I I wrote this thing, and it was very very negative. The lyric was very very negative. I, uh, and that's where you were at the time. That's where I was going. That's yeah. where I was yeah. going. And my very good friend that had the demo studio, Nick Kinsey, he was 27. His wife was 28. I was like 25. And uh, he said, my wife's ill. You know, she's got the dreaded C, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, Nick, you know, oh, well, you know. He said, well, we don't know. She might respond to treatment. And she's, and, and that kicked me over the edge, you know. That kicked me over the edge. And that's when I wrote, I don't believe in miracles. Then I went on holiday And I thought, I didn't say goodbye to Nick. I was basically with my girlfriend. And on the way back, I said to Janet, I've got to phone Nick. I said, I didn't say goodbye to him, you know. So I phoned the studio and Richie Gold, the American guy, picked up the phone. And I said, I, I need to speak to, to Nick, Richie. Can I speak to him? He said, haven't you heard? Is it the funeral? Oh. Well, I went out with Nick that night. You know, I spoke to Nick. I said, what can I do for Nick? What can I do? And he said, um, come out for a drink. So I went up and had a drink with him, and he was just staring into space all night, you know. And then uh, I crashed, basically. But I kept working, and we were starting an American tour the next week. And we were doing a seven-week tour. It was hard. <laughs> That was difficult. But never cancelled a gig. Yeah. I worked all the way through, you know. And the, I was, the boys were great, you know. They had their arms around me and stuff. And uh, a great bunch of guys. Bob and I were walking through the streets of New York, you know, with his arms around me, with his head... I was crying. <laughs> People walking by, thinking, uh, thinking whatever they like. It didn't, but didn't bother me. Yeah, I was just, no. uh, just trying to survive. You sure. know, yeah, that did pass in the end. That passed that, but uh, never cancelled a gig. We never cancelled the gig. It was difficult, but I felt better when I was on the stage. You know, you're, in, you're immersed in it. You're engrossed into that, so you're not thinking about life or anything else. You're, you know, you're doing your guitar solos and you're doing stuff. Uh, So it becomes a little bit automatic, but... I think the thing that kills musicians is downtime. Yeah, yeah. And the psychiatrist said it to me. He said, you know, he said, you um, you need to be out there, Russ. He said, it's happening. You know, he was American, a guy called Oscar Drexler. He said, you know, he was in London, you know, and he said to me, he said, you know, Russ, I treated Al Capone. <laughs> he said to me... <laughs> Yeah, and he was, yeah, he treated Al Capone, you know, he was brilliant, he was brilliant, you know. Well, from Germany, a big problem is, you know, it was so difficult in Germany doing those 945s and 745s. I was saying to other bands, other musicians that were there, how do you get through this? How can you survive this, you know? And they were saying, this guy called Ziggy that worked in this place said, you go to the apotheque and you buy the anine pills. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> so we go... Well, we go down there and we said, they're called anine pills? A-N-1, you know. How do you like this? You like them on 20 or 50 or 100? And it turns out to be pure speed. Of course. <laughs> and they were selling and they were selling it over the counter, you know. So it's well over 100, you know, like you do. Yeah, you take the anine pills with the beer, you know. So, uh, and then you take two and then you take three the next night and then four and uh, nose is running and stuff, and then you can't sleep. Mm. This is how it all started. You yeah, can't yeah. sleep at all, you know, and you're trying to do 9.45, so you've had one hour sleep, and you think, how am I going to get through this, you know? But uh, uh, I'm glad I did it, Don, you know. But you came out the other end. Came out the other end. You know, somebody wrote to me from America. It was a girl wrote to me, and she said something about when we met in New York. Uh, I think it was New York. It was somewhere in uh, America. 
And she said, you gave me a badge and it was a God gave rock and roll to you badge that CBS used to, they made basically. And I said, yeah, I remember having those. She said, well, you gave me it and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I said, I was just trying to stay alive. She said, do you remember? Da, da, da? I said, no, I was just trying to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. And I meant it, you know. Yeah. Did writing that come out of that experience? Yeah, you see what happened. I'm being very long-winded. I do tend to get long-winded. No, no, I'm sorry geez. about that. I'm sorry. When you see, when you're depressed, you've got to keep saying to yourself, I will come through this. It's like people have panic attacks, anxiety attacks. You do come through, so you've got to hang in there. Whoever's listening, you come through. So always say, you know, I feel so bad, I feel so bad. You're going to come through it. You do come through it, and you come through stronger. Of course. So you keep doing it, and you come through strong, you know. So I kept writing. Well, nine months later, I went to this doctor. I've been going to this doctor for nine months in London. And uh, I went there sort of every week. And then I go there every month. And then he gave me some pills. He said, take these for six weeks and come back and see me in six weeks. And then I felt incredibly tired, you know. Mm. I went back six weeks later and he said, stop taking the pills and come back and see me like in two weeks. So, do you know, stop taking the pills. About three or four days later, it was like being reborn. It was just amazing, you know. And I've said to people, you know, then skies bluer and leaves are greener, grass is greener. And, you know, it's like, wow, I'm better than I've been since I was a kid, you know. It's wonderful feeling. It was amazing. So uh, I wrote God Gave Rock and Roll. Love your friend, love your neighbor. Love your life and love your labor. Never too late to change your mind. Don't step on snails, don't climb in trees. Love Cliff Richard, but please don't tease. It's never too late to change your mind. God gave rock and roll to you. Gave rock and roll to you. If you want to be a singer or play guitar, man, you got to sweat or you don't get far. It's never too late to work nine to five. And if you're young, you'll never be old. Music can make your dreams unfold. How good it feels to be alive. Oh, Oh dear, yeah. I've got the biggest smile on my face right now, man. <laughs> that was beautiful. That's so cool. So cool. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it happened, you know? That's just how it happened. And um, played it to the band, and they went, yeah, that's great. I had the idea for the introduction. I had those chords. And Jim started by. Which was Jim, you know, it's great.
Kiss's version. They did it better than us. They saw it better than us. But they took the Cliff Richard reference out. Yeah, they did it right. They, the lyric, their first, their first verse was dead right f- for what they were doing. They were talking about the glory of rock and roll and stuff. It's dead right. You know, sing about Cliff Richard, they won't even know what you mean. Right. Or love your friend, love you. And that's not Kiss to say love your friend. It's me. That's <laughs> not Kiss. You know, love your friend, love your labour, love your life. Love your, that's me basically telling myself. Yeah. That's a gray area, though. Are you allowed, publishing-wise, to rewrite lyrics? Usually, they have to inform the writer. I don't know if it's a courtesy or if it is uh, mandatory. Okay. I don't okay. know. I don't know. But uh, that song came about being recorded by Kiss because I was in America and I was going to... It was one of the record labels. They were finding music for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And Nigel Harrison walked past me from Blondie. 
and I was waiting to go in to see an A&R man. Nigel Harrison walked out and stopped in front of me and said, Russ Ballard. I said, yeah. He said, you know, we're finding music for... Uh, uh, he said, did you see uh, The Excellent Adventures? Well, I hadn't seen that. He said, but the, the new one is going to be called Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. He said, and I've told everybody they ought to record your song. It'd be perfect for the movie. God gave rock and roll to you. And I said, well, that'd be good. Basically, uh, they wanted to find a decent band to do it or a band with a, a high profile to do it, you know. And so they tried a couple of bands and I can't remember who they were. And then the next news I heard was uh, that Chosen Kiss. So wait a minute, that's interesting. So it's not that Kiss recorded it and then the movie picked up on it. No, no, that was recorded. That was recorded from the movie. I never knew that. Yeah. And you also worked with Ace Freely. Well, really? Took, yeah, he took yeah. the song. Yeah. He took the song. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Ace has done me well. He didn't do it first. No, it was a hit here by Hello, a band, a young band, a 16, 17-year-old glam rock band. Mm -hmm. And they were called Hello. I went into the studio with them. This is the demos, Internext Studio in 1975. My brother saw this band. My brother was doing a function. It was on a Saturday night, and he said, this band played before us. He said, they're 16 years old, and they're amazing. I uh, said, you've got to see them. He said, they're amazing. So I arranged to, to go and meet them. You know, I wanted to sort of get find a little band that I could produce, basically, and write songs for. Went up to their, because they're already 16, went up to their mother's little house, and the band were there, and they were all set up, and they were playing in this little house, you know. Yeah. And they yeah. were playing status quo tunes, you know. Yeah. And they were doing, like, boogie, and they were that kind of stuff. Uh, I said, look, I'll write a song, and we'll go in the studio and record it, you know. So I went into uh, Livingston Studios over at Barnet, and uh, I was in downtime, so I was to get it very, very cheaply. And all I had was, I had this title, New York Groove, and I wanted to do it as a kind of a Bo Diddley feel. Dutch, 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 Hey, little girl in the high school sweater. Or, you know, yeah. hey, Mona. Dutch, Dutch, I got this idea of New York Groove from going to America when I'd left Argent. I'd produced Roger Daltrey, Ride a Rock Horse. I'd done his first solo album, played on it. I'd produced the second one. He said, do you want to produce the second one? So I produced it. I was going to, to New York, to Sterling Sound, to master it. And I thought, back in the New York Groove, because that's where I was going. I hadn't been there for a, for a year, 18 months. And I was going backwards and forwards to there. And it was so nice to be on a plane going to New York. I wrote this down in this little pad, New York Groove, and it stayed with me, and I thought, I'm going to call this New York Groove and basically sing about going back. And it's been a year since I was here on the street. I'm just passing my time away to the left and to the right. A town of stone grows to the sky, and it's out of sight in a very light. Here I am again in the city, ding, 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 with a fistful of dollars. And baby, you better believe I'm back. It was the first rap done. It was the first rap. I'm back, ding, back in the New York groove. I got them to do all that stuff, you know. I'm yeah, yeah. back, yeah, yeah. back in the New York groove. And uh, I got them stamping on tre on, a tres on trestle tables as well. They had these big platform shoes, you know, boots. And they were stamping, ging, ging. It was brilliant. In and out in about. Two and a half hours, written, recorded. <laughs> the way it should be. Yeah, but it's how it used to be in the 60s. You yeah. know, you go in and do A on the B side in Beatles, the same. We used to go into Abbey Road when we were kids. And uh, Freddie and the Dreamers, the Hollies, the Beatles, 
all, all contracted to EMI. So it, we had all the roulettes, Adam Faith and the roulettes, Cliff Richards and the Shadows, all go into Abbey Road, do a session of three hours, two songs, A on the B-side, and a 20-minute tea break. Incredible. Great work ethic. It's all finished, you know, and the yeah. second, you know, with the Beatles, those, you know, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. All this, you know. It won't be long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It won't. All those songs went on a four track, but they were done in three hours, you know. Incredible. The first album they did was done in like one 10 hour session. Yeah, well, we saw the Beatles when they just, we saw them in the Carlton Hotel in Yarmouth. They were playing at the ABC and we were playing on the pier. We were in the hotel and they just finished their show and they came bursting into the room, you know. And we sat there for about three hours just chatting, you know, and they were becoming the biggest thing, you know. And Paul sat next to me on my right, and Ringo was just next to him. And they said, where can we get some Seuss made in London? <laughs> we said, you ought to go to our guy, go to Dougie. And Dougie was making our suits, and they went there. They went to Dougie, and Dougie made all their silver suits and all those, all those suits, all those Beatles suits. That was Dougie. But he'd been making our suits for 18 months before that. And you recommended them. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah. I got like a million more questions to ask you, and I, I, I feel bad. You've been very generous with your time. No, no, no. I, I love enthusiasts, you know, and I can tell you're a music man. So uh, it's nice memories for me, Don. You mentioned Roger Daltrey. Now, your old friend Adam Faith had a connection getting you involved in that, I believe. Yeah, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because Adam Faith liked it. If, if, when he started to produce, uh, he wasn't a musician. So, I mean, he used to like to work with me because I could talk to other musicians about how I wanted them to play, or I could do I could do always do a guitar solo, or I could do a, a piano piece, or whatever you know. And then he brought Leo Sayer in as well because where Adam Faith was brought up in London, in West London, Roger Daltrey was brought up two miles away, both in apartments, both in flats, you know. Yeah. yeah. Roger was brought up in Shepherd's Bush, and Adam Faith was brought up in Acton, which was very very close. Of course, when they met, they became very big friends. You know, Roger was acting then as well. Roger was acting in McVicar and stuff. Mm -hmm. The next thing you know is Roger's being produced by Adam Faith, you know. And then he asked Bob and me if we'd play on the album. So we played on Roger's album doing Leo Sayer songs. Yeah, the first album's mostly it Leo Sayer songs. Yeah, it's all Leo and, and David Courtney, yeah. 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 We did that first album in 73. But we started off doing Le a, a Leo Sayer album there. That's what happened. We did the first Leo Sayer album. The show must go on. Great song. And uh, I played banjo on that. I said to Roger that, you know, Dave was playing the tune, and I said, this would certainly suit a banjo, you know? Ding, jigga, ding, jigga, ding, jigga, ding. It'd be a different kind of sound. And I said, Roger, have you got a banjo? And he said, no, but they've got one at the kicking donkey at the pub down the road, you know? It's on the wall. So... Roger and I went down, jumped out the car, went in, and he said, George, can we use your banjo? He said, yeah, he took it off the wall. I mean, the strings were probably on that thing for six years, you know. <laughs> they, were, they were rusty, but the thing is, it made a sound. We did that album, and Roger said, I'm going to do a, an album of Leo Sayer songs. You know, he said, he asked Leo uh, and Dave, you know, if they had songs left over. And so, yeah, that was his first album. They didn't release it in the States, did they, as an album? I don't think. Roger's first album or Leo's first? No, Roger's first album. I think they did. I don't know. If, I didn't think they it, did. Yeah. It's got a, it's a hard life. Yeah, that's it. You got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was so very different than the stuff he was doing with The Who. Well, that was the idea of it, you know. Yeah. I paid all my dues, picked up my shoes, got up and walked away. I was just a boy. 
giving it all away. Great tune. Great. Great tune, that. You know, and Roger sang it beautifully. I mean, it's the most sensitive I've ever heard, Roger. How was he to work with? Roger's is... Uh, is <laughs> <laughs> Roger's good. Roger's good. I mean, I love him. He, he, is, he is good. But, uh, you know, we're all... We all have our foibles. No, Roger is good. Roger is good. How long must I sit around waiting for you? Think of all the heartache you've been putting me through. You must have a soul, but it don't show. Come on, love me, let me go. Come and get your love. Come and get your love. Come and get your love. thinks a lot of me because I did a, an American tour with him playing guitar for him That's right. in the uh, on the East Coast. That was just the East Coast, but uh, where are you exactly, Don? I am in the East Coast. I'm in Rhode Island. Are you, are you not far away? Yeah, yeah. Again, like I mentioned it earlier, you have such a vast amount of artists covering your music from Roger Daltrey to Rainbow. Yeah. ABBA. Well, well, two members of ABBA. Yeah, I did two on Anietta's album, but I've never met either of them. I'll tell you that now. I've never, I still haven't met them. 
I did a demo of I Know There's Something Going On with Nick Kinsey in the studio, and it was the time when um, there were some very good effects units out there in the studio. Digital effects, you know, were happening really big, like mm. digital reverbs. Right. They were on the scene, and they were just amazing. You had all these different programs. You had gated reverb. Gated reverb was just phenomenal at the time. I had a, I had a Lin drum, you know, a drum unit. Oh, yeah. I had a, a, a Roger Lin, you know, when it first came out. Right, I bought right. One. And I used that on the America stuff when I did um, did the, the album of America. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, that's what I used at Abbey Road. And um, But I remember I said to Nick, he was going through these reverbs, and I had the little program, and the program on the then went, do but he started to play with this reverb and he hit the gated reverb and on the kick it sounded so exciting you know mm. and it went I said Nick this is great this is great I got my guitar and I started to play and he, he put a real quick delay on my guitar and I was just playing things because it was inspiring I was playing ding jiggy ding 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 jiggy ding 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 jiggy ding 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 and yet with this drum sound and that together was it was great i loved it you know yeah and then i'd nearly finished the session so i said i tell you i was in the next day as well i said to nick just do me a copy of what we've done i'll take it home and write some words you know i rented a selena do you remember the string synth the selena string synth the original string synth i mean now years and years ago but it was very exciting for the time yeah and i put that on there you know and i started doing something going on there's something going on, something going on, and that, all that kind of stuff. And yep. I wrote the words, did it? I thought, this is a really good demo. And the next thing, Phil Collins was producing Frida. It's, a, I think, her only solo album. Phil played on that. Yeah, that became a hit in the States, didn't it? Huge hit. Going back about two or three years ago, she released a, a, what they call it, a limited edition of I Know There's Something Going On, the album. And uh, they were all signed, and she put, different sleeve notes and stuff on there she put in all sorts of different things you know to, uh, so people would buy them you know but uh, i think they did sort of like ten thousand or whatever it was she put a note on there saying uh, the only regret i have when making this album is that i didn't do any more russ ballad songs oh, isn't that cool that is cool isn't it i yeah. thought it's very cool so um yeah. i've said it a few times i'll say it again you know if she wants some more songs <laughs> yeah, she wants to do an album it's not too late yeah i guess when i was a teenager young teenager I remember your song Voices was on rock radio all the time here. Yeah. And what a great song it is. But how the hell did it end up in a Miami Vice episode? Well, the uh, the director loved the song, apparently. I had two songs in Miami Vice. I had In the Night as well. In the Night was in one of them. And uh, the director uh, directed both of those episodes. And he had already done The Red Dragon do you remember the movie the red dragon yes it was really really so kind of dark i right. mean it was it, it was fascinating kind of lighting but it was a dark idea i was told he wanted me to do some music for that but he ended up putting those two tunes in miami vice yeah did that help I, sales i'm sure it didn't hurt no i know people do remember it from that you know people do remember it uh, uh the song the song was a little bit dark as a, for a single really i mean the lyric was a bit not dark it was obscure it was obscure it was an obscure lyric but i was very pleased with that lyric you know that's a great song i was pleased with it. i was just thank you i was just pleased with it just pleased with the idea of the actual it was kind of going into a different area but you can't always find those kind of lyrics you know i like to work with the lyric i like to start with a lyric i have an idea or a title because for me a lyric kicks it you know and you have an idea for a lyric. I can always write a song if I've got a lyric. 
I've got some great things I'm, I've done in the lockdown, you know, in this 15 months. I've actually put down and finished 16 songs. For me, it's, this lockdown has been no different from any other time, you know. Well, sure, you got the time to work and do your thing. It's, yeah, it's great, you know, and it's, it's blissful, Don, you know. I come out every day. Psychiatrists say the way to well-being or happiness or whatever you want to call it is to be totally engaged into something every day. It's like meditation as well. You're, to you're totally into that, aren't you? If you're certain, they say meditation is very good or whatever. You know, if you're yeah. totally engaged into something, and I found that to be true. I mean, music is a lifesaver anyway. But if you have an idea, you go in the studio with a keyboard or a guitar, whatever you you put down a drum track, then a, a pad or sort of a piano or a guitar, and then you build it up. Come in for lunch and you feel high, you know, and then you go back in there and, you, and do some more the next day, and you come out feeling high, you know, and in the end. If it's going well, you have these moments of bliss. Right. And it is blissful, you know, and you realize kids sit at school, they hate what they do. I didn't, I didn't enjoy school that much. You, you waste so much time at school doing stuff. But uh, every kid has some kind of talent, you know, and you've got to nurture that because that's the key to having a great life. It is the key to having some fulfillment and finding. You hear people talk, talk about bliss and you go, oh, what does that mean, bliss? But you know it's real. When you play music, you do. You have those moments of. Uh, I've had so many moments, even in the lockdown, so many great moments of feeling blissful. Well, I don't want to put a pin in your happiness, but do you get frustrated at all that even if you wrote a song that you felt was the greatest thing you've ever written, that there's fewer and fewer avenues to get that heard today? Does that frustrate you? Because it frustrates me. Yeah, but things change though, Don. Life doesn't stay the same, you know. And the thing, I, I mean, you, you've got sort of the uh, streaming channels and things coming, you know. And we used to phone here and say, how many did Hold Your Head Up sell? Oh, th sold 32,000 yesterday, 24,000 day before. It sold 43,000 today. It's on, and it goes like that. You know, it's wonderful. Now they sell nothing. They sell nothing, but you get paid $100 for 150 million streams or whatever, <laughs> something, something crazy like it that. It's, crazy. it's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But you can't do anything about it. This is life. I still love going in the studio and working. I still love it, you know. And some of these tunes I'm doing at the moment, I think I'm doing the best things because I've never stopped, you know. Are you going to record them or are you giving them to other artists? What's no, the, no. The, Adam Faith used to say to me, why do you give your best songs away? I said, I don't. I record them and they, other people have hits with them. Yeah. Santana had winning and uh, uh, Roger had a song from that album and uh, Since You've Been Gone was from the same album, all from that album. I just write tunes. I always write for me. I never write for anybody else. I, the only time I wrote for someone else is Ace Freely did New York Groove. Well, Hello did it here. Right. And I wrote You Can Do Magic and Tunes for America. I wanted to do something that had the same feel as Horse With No Name, which was hypnosis, you know. Sure. It's brilliant stuff. And I thought, if they could only go back and do something like that, and that's that's for me, that's America for me. I never believed in things that I couldn't see. I said if I can't feel it, then how could it be? No, no magic to me and then I saw you I couldn't believe it you took my heart I couldn't retrieve it said to myself what's it all about now I know there can be no doubt you can do magic you can have anything that you do 
America's comeback hit, You Can Do Magic, written by Russ Ballard, who I want to thank for spending so much time with us on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Now, Russ himself has a podcast, which I invite everyone to check out. It's called The Voices of Russ Ballard Podcast. It's pretty catchy. Where he brings on many of the well-known key players he's worked with throughout his career, dating back to the roulettes and Argent, and goes into much deeper territory than we were able to cover in a mere hour or so here. So check out the show notes for details on that and much more on Russ Ballard. And if you're joining us for the first time, be sure to subscribe to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast on iTunes. And if so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and a kind word or two in the review section. All of our past shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com. Visit us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. All typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. Be sure to come back and check us out next time on the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. If you can see my mind, if you really look deep, then maybe you'll find. That somewhere there will be a place, behind my comedian face. Locked in the room in the corner you see 
Yeah.